we're turning a very exciting corner because not only are we still having barely, but we still have the chance of deviating from the largest unmanageable risks, but we also see that sustainability and, and a zero carbon future can be a healthier, more secure, more prosperous and more equitable future for, for all citizens in the world. Hi, plant friends, and welcome to another episode of the PBN podcast. This week, we meet Joseph Frockstrom. He is one of the most influential earth scientists who is amongst the most cited researchers in the world. As the director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, he advises governments, corporations and activists about the latest research on the climate and biodiversity and strives for better science communication. A collaboration with natural historian and broadcaster David Attenborough saw him create a 2021 Netflix series Breaking Boundaries, The Science of Our Planet. He also participated in President Joe Biden's Climate Summit. In 2020, Professor Rockstrom co-edited Standing Up for a Sustainable World, a book that gathers the voices of leading academics as well as climate change and environmental activists, entrepreneurs and investors. It highlights the urgent action that needs to be taken to foster sustainable, resilient and inclusive development in the face of powerful systemic forces. His other books include The Human Quest and The Big Small World, both produced with Natural Geographic photographer Matthias Klim. I hope you enjoyed this episode. He's a really interesting man, and I really recommend you watch the documentary Breaking Boundaries. It's really eye-opening. Let's get to the episode. Are we at risk of destabilizing the whole planet? Recent discoveries made by scientists studying the ways in which our planet works are surely of the greatest importance for all of us. Their insights are deeply troubling. Nonetheless, they also give us hope because they show us how we can fix things. Johan Rockström has focused on what keeps our planet stable. What he and his colleagues around the world have discovered is perhaps the most important scientific insight of our times. So my first question to you, Professor, is regarding animal agriculture. And considering we now know that animal agriculture is the leading driver for climate breakdown, ocean dead zones, species extinction, habitat loss, why do you think so many environmentalists are actually shying away from criticizing animal agriculture directly? First of all, just to confirm that, yes, the broken food system in the world is is truly broken. This is the single largest cause behind, you know, moving across planetary boundaries into a risk and high danger zone. The single largest emitter of greenhouse gases, the single largest cause behind loss of biodiversity, the world's largest consumer of fresh water, 70% of the withdrawals of fresh water are consumed by fresh, by food. And then also the major uh, reason why we're expanding land into natural ecosystems and the way we overuse nitrogen and phosphorus. So fix the food system and we largely you know, move ourselves decisively back into a safe space on a stable planet. So that is a, a really important fact. Then when it comes to what are the solutions there and what role does plant-based versus livestock or animal-based protein play, uh, we have a lot of evidence that ruminants, red meat is one of the major sources behind methane and, and carbon emissions from the agricultural sector. At the same time, we have quite a lot of scientific evidence that uh, animal protein in, in uh, balanced amounts can be part of a healthy diet, particularly when you look across the entire world 
and and if you come to vulnerable agricultural or pastoralist communities around the world it's um, it's quite obvious that we need to you know safeguard a certain level of animal protein in those diets so when we did the first ever uh, scientific assessment of what what is a, a good planetary health diet a diet that both can you know serve healthy humans but also serve healthy planet that turns into a flexitarian diet not not a fully plant-based diet but a, a diet that is ramping up plant-based protein in a very significant way so basically going from scaling down in the rich parts of the world like in Europe and in the US uh, red meat consumption reductions from seven eight hundred grams per person per week to 150 grams per person per week so a very drastic decline but still one serving a week of red meat two servings a week of white meat chicken and two servings a week of fish so five servings of protein which is assessed basically only on the state of let's say the mainstream assessment within uh, the medical uh, research and the question is can this be produced in a sustainable way so you know it's a it's, it's clear that plant-based energy sources and protein sources are fundamentally important for us to be able to have a world that develops within planetary boundaries, but it's not the only solution and it's not obvious that it can be applied everywhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, that leads me on to the next question. But before I do, I do want to sort of press you on the final part of that question was, why do you personally, as a scientist, feel like a lot of environmentalists seem afraid to criticize animal agriculture? Do you feel that there is just a lack of understanding of the implications of the damage animal agriculture is doing, factory farming? Or do you think there is something bigger at play? To start with, I, I should say that I'm not entirely sure if you say that the scientific community is not willing to criticize the the industrial uh, modern scale uh, meat industry because I think there is a lot of critique out there. If there's not enough critique, I think it has to do with, with not fully understanding how the system works. My conclusion is, for example, that grain-fed meat production is an unsustainable system that should be phased out. While you can see a small-scale grazing fed or grazing based ruminant systems that have multiple ecosystem functions in keeping landscapes open in different ecosystems around the world and uh, are providers of dairy products that still play a very important role in both cultures and for health and and without uh, livestock you have no dairy products and and therefore also rather than uh, slaughtering the calves that can give you the milk you can have a sustainable offering of certain amounts of animal protein. So it's, I think it's also about the understanding the full complexity of, uh, of, of how livestock's, livestock systems really work. But you're right that there is this uh, the tendency of, of allowing all of these systems to basically be placed in one section. I mean, the, the, the big drama in, in Europe, for example, is that we import soya feed to intensive uh, red meat production systems in Europe and that soya feed is contributing to ruining the Amazon rainforest and then we have a linear production system where we have overproduction of, of manure unhealthy people and we eutrophy waterways downstream so we have this linear system that cuts down trees exports nutrients from Brazil comes to Europe and downstream through excreta and urine 
causes eutrophication of downstream waterways. That is, of course, a completely broken system. The science is clear and has been communicated for the past 30 years, and still we're not moving in the right direction. I don't get depressed. I get angry. What are the systems that determine the state of the planet? This is about us. It is about our future. All is not well with our planet. As we increase our pressures on Earth, we are now crossing irreversible tipping points. Nature is being degraded at a rate and a scale that is unprecedented. When we emit CO2, about a third has ended up in the ocean. There's no sign of any wildlife at all. Based on the seven and a half million deaths, we have already crossed the boundary as far as aerosols are concerned. As we manipulate the planet's climate, we're literally playing with fire. Are we concerned about fighting the climate crisis? The window is still open for us to have a future for humanity. We still have a chance. Are you familiar with the study by Joseph Poor of Oxford University? Uh, which suggests that um, only 18% of our calories are coming from livestock, but actually it takes up over 83% of our farmland. And he often states, and he talks quite publicly about the fact that, you know, switching to a plant-based diet has far more reaching consequences. And yeah, I guess to sort of not to labor on the point, but because cutting animal products out of our diet can have such a huge impact on our carbon footprint as individuals, you know, should we be pushing more? Because I know you mentioned, obviously, flexitarian, which is massively reducing our meat consumption. Of course, you, you highlighted that there are many communities around the world where that just isn't possible due to the land, the type of land. But over here in the Western world and sort of the US and the UK and across Europe, where we do have the option to, to opt for more climate-friendly foods. You know, should we be pushing people more to do this? Should we all really just be giving up meat in the Western world? Well, I think, I mean, I think you're, a point, a really important point that you make is that there, there's not one solution for everyone in the world and that uh, many livestock systems in the world have adapted through you know centuries often millennia and therefore are well adapted to their local conditions so when you have for example grazing land for uh, livestock it's often the land that you cannot use for cultivating other types of foodstuff. So it's not, it's not so that you can simply just substitute extensive grazing in the Tanzanian savanna to, um, you know, maize crops, uh, because the soils are simply not deep enough. It's not, it's, there's no, there's no substitution simply. So it, it's not as simple just to say that you eradicate all livestock and then, and then you have a solution. But you're right. I'm, I'm absolutely with you that we have, you know, over the last 50 years, uh, allowed ourselves to simply go out of the corridor of both sustainability on the planet and health for people when it comes to production and consumption of red meat products, which which we need to now turn back. And, and we need to particularly turn back, first and foremost, turn back in the rich parts of the world and do it really fast because we know that, unfortunately, with the rapidly uh, emerging economies, in, for example, in China and India and uh, Southeast Asia, we see, unfortunately, a linear relationship with per capita income and consumption of meat. So, so the meat consumption increases because they're aspiring to the lifestyles represented by the, 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 the richer northern 
economy. So, so the, the shift has to also come as a way of uh, uh, being ambassadors for a new, for a new lifestyle. Are we at risk of destabilizing the whole planet? Recent discoveries made by scientists studying the ways in which our planet works are surely of the greatest importance for all of us. Their insights are deeply troubling. Nonetheless, they also give us hope because they show us how we can fix things. Johan Rockström has focused on what keeps our planet stable. What he and his colleagues around the world have discovered is perhaps the most important scientific insight of our times. This comes from ice core data, and I think that this is the most important graph we have today. The graph is a revelation. It shows global temperature variability over the past 100,000 years since the first appearance of modern humans. We were jumping between plus minus 10 degrees Celsius in a decade. We had, to put it simple, a rough time. What's critical is that the temperature stabilized just 10,000 years ago. Geologists have given this period of stability its own special name. It's called the Holocene. The Holocene is remarkable. It is a warm period where the planet's global mean temperature varies between just plus minus one degree Celsius during the entire period. The Holocene's stable temperatures gave us a stable planet. Sea level stabilized. For the first time, we had predictable seasons and reliable weather. This stability was fundamental. For the first time, civilization was possible and humanity wasted no time in taking advantage. The Holocene is the only state of the planet we know for certain can support the modern world as we know it. But we have just left the Holocene behind. The exponential rise in human pressures on planet Earth has now reached a stage where we have now created our own geological epoch. We are now in the Anthropocene, the age of humans, because we now are the primary drivers of change on planet Earth. It's just a, a mind-boggling situation to be in. For the first time, we have to seriously consider the risk of destabilizing the entire planet. There is a danger that we have already crossed the boundary in Earth's climate. The most alarming evidence of this is in the change of our planet's ice. Having two caps of, of permanent ice in the Arctic and in Antarctica is the very precondition for the planet to stay in the state that has enabled us to develop civilizations as we know it. A permanent white surface like, like what we can see around us here is reflecting back 90-95% of incoming heat from, from the sun. When these ice sheets start melting, you can come to a point where the ice sheets tip over from being self-cooling to becoming self-warming. And that is the most dramatic tipping point in the Earth system. A tipping point is a point beyond which a change becomes irreversible. Other than obviously removing animal products from our diet, which can have you know, far-reaching planetary health consequences, what are some of the other things as we at, that we as individuals can do to sort of reduce our, our carbon footprint, reduce our environmental impact? 
Well, there are many things we can do and, and, and must do. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the two big transitions we face, I mean, there are many, but the two prime ones is the energy transition and the food transition. So to reach a zero carbon energy system in just 30 years time, 2050, and to have sustainable, healthy food in the same time. Basically, I mean, all the climate scenarios shows, for example, that global agriculture must shift from being a source of greenhouse gases to become a sink of greenhouse gases within one generation. So this is this is an agricultural revolution, basically. So what are then additional to what we eat, the pathways towards, um, you know, coming back to a safe operating space on planetary boundaries? Well, number one that we individuals must do is to contribute to moving towards zero fossil fuel use in our lifestyles. How can we do that? Well, the number one issue that I think we all simply need to take responsibility for is to download a carbon calculator on our mobile phones, calculate our own individual carbon emitting carbon footprint, and then decide, you know, as individuals or families or communities that we will follow the scientific path, which is the same path that political leaders now are forced to accept and are accepting, namely the carbon law. And the carbon law says cut emissions by half every decade and we have a chance of a soft landing. Anyone can do that. Anyone can say, okay, over the next 10 years, I'm going to cut emissions by half. How do you do that? Well, you do it first. The easiest step is, I mean, apart from what we eat, is to shift mobility, meaning shifting from using private cars to public transport, from private cars to cycling private cars to different types of, of, of combustion, of course, to go from diesel to electric mobility, but also to recognize that reducing on, on private air travel. Again, I'm, I'm even here, not, not uh, among those who say we need to go to zero overnight, but we can, for example, take decisions to say, I'm from now on not going to fly uh, distances that are shorter than 600 kilometers because uh, we have uh, generally always alternative uh, land transport systems for such distances. So, so domestic flights can be canceled. And of course, you know, that would take down the, your footprint potentially very rapidly. I mean, depending on, on, on your life situation, but these are things that all of us can and must start really working with. So in the current climate, uh, Greenland is already beyond its threshold. Uh, where it's now losing 10,000 cubic meters of ice per second. That's the average loss rate. Now, that loss rate will only continue as the climate heats up. So, is Greenland lost? Evidently, it is. The drama here is that one characteristic of tipping points is that once you've pressed the on button, you cannot stop it it takes over, it's too late. It's not like you could say, oops, now I realize I didn't want to melt the green on ice sheet. Let's, let's back off. Then it's too late. The important point to make here is that everything in the Earth system is connected. If one part of the climate system crosses its tipping point, then that might make it more likely for other parts of the system to also cross their critical threshold. So you can think of this in terms of dominoes. If you tip one of them over, then this might lead to a cascading effect. When we cross tipping points, we unleash irreversible changes. That would mean that the planet will go from our best friends, a position where it dampens and reduces the stress. 
sucking up carbon dioxide, taking up heat, absorbing impacts, and tipping over to a point where it could self-reinforce warming and become a foe. One of the other alternatives with regard to animal protein is uh, cellular agriculture. Um, I'm not sure what your awareness is or understanding of cellular agriculture, but it uses a fraction of the environmental footprint. And if and when it can be uh, produced to scale, it could potentially be a, an alternative to animal proteins across the world, not obviously just for the humans that decide they wish to continue or have to continue to consume animal products, but also to companion animals, pets and animals in sanctuaries. Uh, what are your thoughts on this sort of innovation? Do you think, do you see it as a, as a sort of powerful solution? Well, I think all, all the cards need to be on the table. And I think cellular foods and different forms of microbial protein and, and all forms of, of kind of alternative protein sources are worth you know investing in exploring and they will certainly as they do already today play an important role but will they be the big solution i'm doubtful um i'm i'm, I'm doubtful because it is it is something that um, certainly will will be an important niche for relatively individuals with high purchasing power in urban areas and not so obviously the solution for large tracts of rural communities around the world. But I think, again, we have learned a lot in terms of not being naive to think that there is a kind of a silver bullet out there for these kind of challenges, that we need multiple solutions. And this is one of them. We, we need a high diversity of solutions and, and that uh, different forms of alternative foods, lab foods, are, are certainly one of the of the of the wedges uh, that should be and i think it will will be just like it does already today playing an important role for more purchasing strong consumers or, 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 or citizens in urban areas in the world just as we see already today in uh, in, in in larger urban areas where plant-based foods and different forms of alternative foods are arising in demand Absolutely. I mean, our philosophy or my personal philosophy is if you have the privilege and the opportunity to choose foods that are have a low environmental impact and you have the knowledge, it, it is a moral obligation or an environmental obligation at least to make those changes. Uh, because obviously, if the options are there, then you know we should really consider strongly choosing them. My next question is, um, the Netflix hit Seaspiracy has had a huge effect on changing people's attitudes towards the sea, uh, seafood, and the way humans are impacting our ocean. Um, is it your hope that Breaking Boundaries is going to have a similar effect uh, to sort of widespread public awareness about the big picture of humanity on the planet? The, I mean, the purpose of, the, of Breaking Boundaries is really to um, put all the science we have on the table on the risks we're posing to the planet as a whole, and to embed that in a story that hopefully you know engages people so yes i mean the the hope is that this raises uh, a higher level of of engagement and willingness to uh, you know be part of the transformation but i also hope that um, as as opposed to the um, to the oceans film that this documentary also provides you know the scientific story that uh, we are basically turning a corner and we're turning a very exciting corner because not only are we uh, still having barely but we still have the chance of deviating from the largest uh, unmanageable risks but we also see that sustainability and, and a zero carbon future can be a healthier more secure more prosperous and more equitable future for 
for all citizens in the world. So it's a it's also a narrative to try and 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 kind of reposition sustainability, reposition the whole environmental agenda from being an environmental issue to becoming the central story for modernity, for for the next step in human modern civilizational development in the world. I mean to to kind of make sustainability the entry point for everything we do basically reconnecting the world to planet earth and uh, and of course that's a that's a big ask so we're, we're not after just just uh, kind of trying to communicate that everything we're doing is wrong we're, we're rather saying look here there is so much evidence now that we have the recipe for success and and, and, a, and a positive way forward we have all the tools we need, absolutely. And I, I obviously have seen the documentary, absolutely loved it. Like you, it made me feel depressed in parts, but it also made me feel angry, like you said. And I love that quote you said, you know, I don't get depressed, I get angry. It goes without saying that if we channel that anger into our work, into our advocacy, into our environmentalism, uh, it's bound to uh, bear some fruits. <laughs> So my next question is, you know, Greta Thunberg is very frank about the damage animal agriculture is having to our oceans, to our rivers, to deforestation, all these other things. David Attenborough, on the other hand, Sir David Attenborough, on the other hand, is a little more conservative. Um, what are your thoughts on the sort of differences and the way people speak about these issues and how radical really do we need to be when it comes to raising the alarm? Because that's what this film does. It really does raise the alarm when I when I finished watching the film, I felt, you know, emotionally charged uh, about the future of humanity and deeply concerned. Yes, it's a it's a really good question, and um, and and it's a, it's about the different roles we play. And uh, I mean, Giriatta Tumbay, as as the activist she is and and uh, should be, she has a possibility, and and I think she feels she has the responsibility also to to have the highest drum beat. While a person like David Attenborough is, is of course, uh, somewhere in, in between because uh, he, um, he, has, he has a role of uh, sharing the mainstream pathway of, you know, there's always a normal distribution in, in all sciences, in all knowledge. And an academic like myself, I'm, I'm also sitting somewhere in, in this... Uh, you know, range from denialism to, to doomsday uh, conclusions. And therefore, I think uh, the world is best served by uh, scientists like ourselves to, to be quite careful with, uh, with the state of science. Because if a person like myself um, step out too far away from, from, let's say, the published peer-reviewed research, the, the core that is out there. I mean, not, not single papers, but really the, the large bulk of, of the knowledge base. Then I think it, it can, on the long term, I mean, it can on the short term have, have really positive uh, impacts if, if you kind of uh, make devastating warnings. But on the long term, you risk eroding the trust in science. And I think that is a, that's a very delicate balancing act. And society has entrusted huge levels of trust in science and the whole scientific method and and we need to be careful with it what we do between 2020 and 2030 it will be the decisive decade for humanity's future on earth human health animal health and environmental health the three are so much linked we've covered the whole planet with knowledge the future is not determined the future is in our hands
It's a remarkable time to be alive. You may never look at the world in the same way again. No one is doing wrong, really, or right or wrong, but, but I just flag that we play different roles. So it's not so surprising that uh, I may be a little bit more careful in the way I articulate my assessment of animal-based agriculture compared to, to Greta, even though I have uh, very often interactions with her and, and I have a huge, huge respect uh, for, for what she and the Fridays for Future youth movement is accomplishing and is doing and is communicating. Mm -hmm.